You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family, and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step-by-step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves, if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to Arenison Akoje, a novelist and short story writer whose work has been described by others as risky and dazzling, and by herself as weird and experimental. She received a Betty Trask Award for her debut novel, Butterfly Fish, and her short story, Grace Jones, won the Kane Prize in 2020. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and her most recent collection, Nudibranch, is out now in paperback. Arenison is also just a delight to speak with. Warm, engaging, generous with her time, which was all the more fascinating given the dark, mysterious, and fantastical twists and turns much of her writing can take. When Arenison and I spoke, we discussed what would have happened if, in her early 20s, she'd accepted a job as an editorial assistant at a magazine in New York. Along the way, we discussed why mentors matter, the importance of embracing mess, and why everything good starts with a fabulous lunch. Hi, Renison. Hi, Miriam. <laughs> it's so nice to have you here. And I'm really eager to get talking about your unlived life as it's a really good one. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and it's exciting to have you here in no small part because your writing style, in particular in your most recent collection, Nudibranch, it's wild and experimental. It's fantastical. Um, it's also often violent and sexual and gruesome, but it's always rich in every way. And your stories, I think, leave the reader with this sense of being kind of carried along to somewhere really unexpected. And this conversation we're about to have, I think, is it's in a sense writing a story in that way. We follow a thread detail by detail to create the story of your unlived life. And I guess I'm just so excited to see where your brain goes with this exercise. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so first, I wondered if you could just say something about your writing style, how you came to write the way that you do. Sure, yeah. Well, I've always um, I've always been a really voracious reader, I think. So I'll start, uh, you know, with being a reader and just having a real appetite for books, all sorts of books. And I remember the first book um, I picked up when I came to this country, I moved to England when I was eight years old, um, was Roald Dahl's Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I mean, what a way to sort of kick off your reading life. It's such a strange, hilarious, zany book, you know, about this fox causing all sorts of havoc. Um, And I just thought it was hilarious. I just thought it was really clever in the way that it, you know, it straddled almost two different um, genres, so adult and kind of YA fiction. And from that point, my imagination really just kind of took off. 
And then even before that, growing up in Nigeria, listening to oral folk tales, they were often um, fantastical stories. They were often surreal fables, but, you know, kind of within the oral story tradition. So every time you heard the story from someone else, it would change slightly. So I kind of had that already, I think, in my DNA. And then to come to England and discover kind of documented fiction if you like and this sort of world opened up to me uh, and you know I just became really hungry for books and language and what you could do with language and of course I went on to read people like Toni Morrison who had a huge influence on me I just loved her writing and the first book of hers I read was jazz which again mimicked a musical genre I thought this woman's a genius how has she managed to create a book that actually mimics a musical genre while documenting Black American life so beautifully and so nuancedly. I think from that point, I just I just had the bug. I was just curious and I was, I was reading all sorts. I was reading fiction. I was reading poetry. I was feeding myself. I started discovering that maybe I had a bit of a knack for, for words and language. Um, and that was how it really started. And then it just became this ongoing thread in my life, really, where I feel like stories and fiction and this idea of how we excavate and explore the human condition was something that really fascinated me. Within that, I also wanted to be subversive. I didn't want to do it in ways that were typical, especially because I'm so interested in telling stories about people of colour and black people and black women in particular. And our lives are often so hidden, you know, and it, for me, it's important to show the kind of internal landscapes that we have, how complex our lives are, uh, but also to do it in ways that people don't expect. Because I think a lot of the stuff I see and read, I kind of am like, yeah, these are the themes people expect us to talk about. And this is how they expect us to do it. I like to just completely turn all of that on its head. I'd love to hear a little bit more, and it's kind of nice and grounding just to hear a little bit more about your childhood, about those sort of years before uh, your path began to diverge and before your imagination really started to wake up. I mean, it was such a colorful childhood. Um, so I was born in Benin in Nigeria and uh, we moved to Lagos, actually. Uh, we moved to the city and yeah, it was a big household. It was super colorful. My dad was very good at taking in strays and there was always a story, you know, about who, we, how he'd met this person and how they needed help. And, you know, there was a story about their life. So it felt like I grew up in a house of stories. So both my family stories and these people that my dad would just bring in to help because he was forever helping so-and-so that, oh, you know, they, uh, for whatever reason, they were down on their luck. Oh, you met this great man at the market. And wouldn't it be great if we gave him a job and you know so the stories were just everywhere and that was even as a kid it was really interesting to me um and then of course uh, I would often go and stay with my grandmother in Benin like both of them and they were always forever telling stories too because <laughs> it's just something that um I think is really embedded within that culture you know of course my imagination loved all of that because it seemed that wherever I was there was always something to learn always something to absorb you know um, and of course Benin as well has a really rich history because it was formerly a kingdom so my dad was was often telling me stories uh, uh, you know about the Benin kingdom about the art about the people you know about the kind of the power of blackness in that context 
very often our history is slavery. But for me, that was fascinating that I had a direct connection to that. That was hugely empowering to me, uh, which is why I, I wrote about it in my first, my debut novel. You know, I sort of reimagined the Benin Kingdom. I think this is what's amazing about stories is, you know, the kind of layering that happens and the duality that comes from partially growing up in Nigeria, coming with those stories in me. uh, And, you know, that tradition of oral storytelling where things mutate in the most beautiful way. And I think that's why my stories, um, you know, they have that element to them that they're kind of they're kind of like modern fables, dark modern fables, but but hopefully doing something new, kind of treading new ground. Because people often say to me, God, you, you're so lovely. Are you okay? Like this story. It seems really reductive, but it is this hilarious thing where you are delightful, you know, and, you, and, and smiley and happy and bubbly. And there is light and happiness in these stories, but there's a, a lot of darkness. And I think you're right, that duality and that, It's so extraordinary to sort of hold those simultaneous realities of the Benin kingdom and slavery and, and be able to, you know, and in the same way, this lightness and this darkness within your work and to be able to say yes, both. It's true that growing up in the UK or in the U S you're, you are really, you're taught about the darkness, which is vitally important, obviously, but you don't hear that richness. And I love that it's coming through in your work. Yeah, I think it's so important, which is why I was so determined to write that novel, because um, I think it's Toni Morrison that said, um, you know, if there's a book that you want to see out there that doesn't exist, write it or something along those lines. And that quote, it, it just stayed with me for so long. And every time I thought about that quote, I would think about this novel and what I wanted to do with it. And the fact that I wanted to see it exist, because, of course, you know, uh, Benin, the kingdom has been written about in, in nonfiction, but I hadn't seen anything written about it in fiction well not that I know of and not in the way that I wanted to do it which was you know you know kind of combining um uh, three different time spans uh, the modern day at uh, the past and you know ancient Benin so you're creating this tapestry in a way and you're you know you're talking about familial legacies and historical legacies there's so much richness there that you know and so much nuance that you want to mine um as a writer that for me it's 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 always a process of investigation so I, I always go to the page, never fully knowing exactly what's going to happen. And I think that that's why my readers feel like that too, because it's the same for me. You know, I'm going through the process and thinking, God, where's this going to go? You know, and then the beautiful thing is when the characters just start speaking for you, you know, you're almost like a vessel in a way to um, tell the story. Uh, but but for me, um, broadly, I guess, um, this, this idea of being able to connect with people who, you know, you wouldn't normally connect with in a way or um, maybe understand their experiences. So people of colour in particular, being able to show them and show them in, in all their complexities. And, um, you know, I'm really, really... Um, deliberate in my depiction of messy black women uh, and messy women because I think that we're often not allowed the full spectrum of emotion <laughs> you know um, we're, we're we are told that we have to be a certain way and black women in particular are held to a higher standard you have to be a really nice person all the time otherwise you know 
people think that you're angry. And of course, we have a lot of stuff to be pissed off about. So the stories, in a way, are are great to be able to show that, to be able to show, you know, that complexity, uh, to be able to show revenge. You talked about violence. You talked about sex. Again, you know, um, very often with women of colour, how often do you see their sexual lives explored? How often do you see explored in ways that are interesting and aren't stereotypical and aren't reductive and aren't, frankly, offensive? But hopefully I try to do it in ways that feel sensual and robust and surprising. Uh, and there's, you know, there's this element of agency there as well. So yeah, we do, I'm trying to do all sorts. <laughs> this idea of transformation, I think is really key. And as you say, this idea of agency and mess and mess is just one of my favorite things. I'm just all about mess at the moment. It feels really necessary to display mess wherever possible. And I think that Delving into lives we haven't lived feels a bit a bit kind of scary and a bit messy and a bit dangerous. And I think that this is why I was sort of compelled to do something around this is because it's tidier if we just don't think about that life. And it's not about regretting not having done something or um, you know really kind of you know feeling a huge amount of grief or something for a path you didn't take though it might be but i do think we tend to once we've made a decision we tend to sort of go okay that's done and we move on and we ignore the fact that there's a longing there there's a desire there to um that we've put away and so this is what i want to get to with you i want i think we should we're just, just going to open it up and and see what we find um so this idea of transformation um, and and your path, which you're going to pursue today. And it's a moment where I think you were, in a way, on the edge of a transformation and the way that you describe your characters are certainly a potential one and you didn't take it. Um, can you say something about the path that you want to explore today? The path is editorial assistant for a really cool transcultural magazine called Trace Magazine, actually. It's it's a New York-based magazine, um, but very diasporic, particularly looking at Black cultures. And if I recall, I think the founder was a guy from Togo who had studied in London and then moved to New York, you know, so had this sort of international um, feel about him. But it was such a, it was such a cool, edgy magazine. And um, yeah, I got this opportunity to, to kind of, I guess, start within that structure and hopefully the, the the aim would have possibly to work my way up to editor that's what I would have loved I would have loved to have been editor of this magazine um but yeah unfortunately um I didn't take up the opportunity for reasons we will we can talk about but yeah I had the, it was the combination of going to New York um working for this amazing magazine that I just thought was really freaking cool and I was you know, I was super thrilled to get the offer, um, but also torn, very, very torn. Tell me how old you were and, and what was going on with you then? Yeah, I was 25, I think. I was living at home uh, with my um, brother, you know, my younger brother, my younger sister. And my mother was kind of back and forth, um, coming back, um, you know, to London to support us and then going back to home to Nigeria. Uh, and my sister, you know, my sister has epilepsy. You know, she has a difficult health condition. And at the time, I, I remember that we had gone through so many different medications for her because the side effects were always tricky. It was really 
difficult to get her seizures under control. Um, so it was a tough time um, family-wise. And I applied for that, just, just never expecting actually to get the offer, you know. But for whatever reason, I got the offer and I was, I was super excited. Um, but it, it was within the context of, you know, being um, in this difficult family situation where I was, uh, my sister and I are very, very close, you know, and I feel very protective of her and very responsible for her, um, you know, because she is, she is vulnerable. So we were in the process of trying to sort out this medication thing and hopefully get her to settle, hopefully get, you know, get to a place where the seizures would stop. But at just at that time, it just it was just not happening. It was a very stressful period. Unfortunately, I felt like I couldn't take up, up that offer for that reason, because I would have felt so guilty, you know, leaving her behind. I know she would have really struggled without me for a bit it would have been quite hard for her and I just would have felt bad I would have felt like I'd abandoned her when she really needed me the most so I was gutted you know I thought about it on and off for a long time every now and again I remember I would I would open the email (laughs) and I would just think oh that's a whole life that and the interesting thing is I know that had I taken that offer I don't I don't necessarily think I would have settled back in the UK I would have found a way I just know it so first quickly just tell me so what were you doing for for work and what did you you ended up staying so what did you end up staying and doing yeah so at the time I was actually um doing a bit of freelance for a black filmmakers magazine called BFM uh because I I love film and then I was doing kind of like just sell stuff as well you know um market research and just like I don't know, dull stuff that really, (laughs) you know, just to pay the bills, really. And were you writing at that time or did that come later? Yeah, I was writing. I mean, obviously I was writing for the magazine, uh, you know, writing nonfiction and essays, um, critical essays, which was good. You know, it was nice to kind of cut my teeth doing that stuff. Um, but yeah, from 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 a young age, I was always writing like poetry, and you know, I had uh, kept a diary, you know, several diaries. So I was doing diary entries as well, um, and yeah, like kind of mini plays too. Uh, but this is all sort of quietly uh, that I was doing this stuff. You know, I wasn't necessarily showing people um, my creative stuff at that at that time. All right. Well, so let's, let's go the other way. Let's go down the path of your unlived life. So you are living in London. uh, You're looking after your sister. You apply for this job on a whim. You get the email that says you've been given this job as editorial assistant at Trace in New York. And you say, yes. Yeah. What happens next? Okay. Great question. So what happened next? First thing I think I, I have to sort out a work visa. That would be the first thing while I'm sorting that out, I guess, hunt for a possible apartment as well, <laughs> because I would need to find somewhere to live. So uh, I would be looking at areas not too far from wherever the base of the magazine was. So I could, you know, commute quite easily. So maybe somewhere affordable, I would be probably be looking at Brooklyn or somewhere like that uh, to find somewhere like reasonable to kind of house share or flat share. So that would be the thing. The other thing is to um, tap my older brother for money. <laughs> as blunt as that sounds, he was in Atlanta at the time. Perfect. You know, that would have been really helpful to me just to have another family member that's close to me there 
Uh, and he would have been happy, I think, to help out in the beginning. Okay, so we we get some practical stuff underway, and I, I think we're going to want to land on some more details about your living in a second. But obviously, the thing that kept you in London was your sister and her condition. So what do you do about that? How do you make sure she's okay? I guess I would I would have suggested, well, probably weekly phone calls, I guess three or four times a week, which sounds like a lot, but just kind of checking in because I know that that makes her less anxious. So I would, I would have made sure that there was some sort of structure in place where, you know, we would catch up at the beginning of the week, maybe midweek as well. And then at the weekend, just to see how she was doing. Okay. And she would have stayed living in your flat and she would have been okay. Yeah, she would have stayed because uh, she would have stayed with my brother who, you know, um, so she would have she would have somebody there, and also my mother comes back and forth. So you know there is that support. Well, that sounds like a good start for her. So you've you've then you've got your plane tickets, and you fly to New York. And let's let's get a little more specific. What's your living setup there? You've you've spoken to some people. You're thinking about Brooklyn. Where do you end up living when you get there? I think Brooklyn because I love the sound of Brooklyn. I always have. Have you been there? No, but I love the sound of it and I know people who have. So, um, you know, it sounds like really quite um, diverse. I would be specifically looking for an area like that, you know, where it was um, mixed culturally and um, I wouldn't feel alienated or other. And that that sense of feeling alien or other is that you would avoid in Brooklyn. Is that something that you feel like you've encountered in life or something that you sort of orchestrate things so that you don't encounter? I think I probably still would have felt it because I just am a little weirdo. Um, <laughs> I just am. And I embrace that. You know, I don't I don't have a problem with it anymore. <laughs> I fully, fully support weirdness. I think there should yes. be much more weird in the world. Like we need weird. Weird is fabulous. It, it is. It's awesome. So I'm just like, I embrace the weird. But what I want to be able to do is feel like, you know, there is space for people like me. I think that's what I what I mean by that. You know, I want to see myself reflected uh, and all the kind of nuances of that. Of course, I've lived in areas that were very white. I went to a British boarding school when I first moved to this country for four, five years. And I was my brother and I were the only black kids. So, you know, that feeling of being other has always been there. Because, you know, when we would go back to Nigeria as well, after living in England for a long time, they knew that we were we were foreign, like, you know, because you have the accent. So you're other even in Africa. So that otherness is is always been there. And those, you know, the dual identities um, that's been there. But I, you know, I think that that's OK. I don't have a problem with it. Um, but I do want to feel completely comfortable. I do want to, like I said, I do want to feel and see myself reflected. All right. So you've got your living sorted out. You've got to go into work and get started there. So what's that like? What's your what's your first day of work like? Oh, my God. I really thought my first day of work is just like getting to know my manager or editor above me and going for a really great lunch. Let's start as we mean to go on. <laughs> yeah, really just, I guess, within that time as well to connect to whoever is managing me because I think that relationship is really important you know get a sense of their expectations and also my expectations and um, me being me I would really I would really want to be open about how I want to make the role my own because I am creative and I love to curate as well 
um, you know, so I, I want to, I would, I would definitely want to discuss that element. So you're 25 at this point, right? So how does your manager feel about you wanting to make the role your own? <laughs> well, I would hope that, I would hope that it's a really open, that he or she is somebody that's excited to have somebody young and keen, uh, you know, in the role. Well, let's decide. Are they up for it? Yes, they are up for it. Hurrah. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so that means you get started and you are pursuing these stories then. Why don't we think about a story that you're you're covering? What's something that you go out and you cover? Ooh, interesting. Yeah, that's a really cool that's a really cool suggestion. Hmm. I'm really kind of fascinated by um sexuality and liberation within that. So I don't know, maybe looking at clubs that explore those elements like burlesque clubs and just that kind of scene I think would be interesting to to write about maybe maybe I don't know maybe a, a, a young woman who's setting up something empowering in that way and finding out what her story is yeah I guess her, her ideas behind it her intention what she hopes to achieve I would definitely want to find a way into that scene and talk to the women within that. What is it that you think that draws you to that in particular, the, the elements around sexuality, you talked a little bit about black women's sexuality and how we never see it and we're not sort of allowed access to it. Can you just say more about what you find interesting about all of that? Because it's a way of expression, isn't it? You know, um, it's a liberating thing and we all do it. Uh, and, and, you know, there are so many, there are so many, um, I guess, ways of exploring it and stories around it, especially for people like me and the fact that it doesn't get documented that I'm, I'm just really curious about that. I want to know about it because it's, it's part of life, you know, and just going back to talking about women, um, and you can say, I guess, women X as well, you know, to, um, I want to explore every every aspect of that, and that includes sexuality. I don't want to feel limited because, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a woman. I'm a black woman, and you know, sometimes it feels like the world has placed limitations on me, and and it does. But within my writing, I can push through that, and that's what I love about it. It gives me this freedom to interrogate stuff and to forge new parts and to shine a light on things. So that's what I want to use it for. Well, so let's, why don't we keep going and see how you progress then? So you you start by exploring these um, sort of more underground subcultures in New York um, and you do this for a bit. And do you, do you work your way up to edit a role? Hell yes, Miriam. <laughs> Let's imagine that I, I work really hard. Um, you know, I write interesting features and stories. I, you know, connect to uh, lots of different people. And me being me as well, I would, I would probably be quite strategic as well within that because I think, you know, having been through certain experiences, I know that that's helped me in the past. So I would, I would want to find a mentor that was quite high up to mentor me and just, you know, just kind of, hopefully f cultivate a good relationship with them. Who's the mentor? Who's the mentor? Goodness me. As in, as in, you don't, obviously it doesn't need to be a specific person in New York publishing in 2007, but um, in general, yeah. sort of the, the kind of person. 
okay, the kind of person, okay, I would love it to be, um, I would love it to be a woman of color, a really uh, successful woman of color, who's um, very well established, very well connected, and can just kind of be a guidance, like a, a, you know, a place of comfort and uh, a space to be able to talk about my experiences. I think that would really be helpful to me, you know, so somebody, somebody generous, somebody who has, I guess, I think, a history of one of mentoring um, younger women. I think that's important because sometimes you can you can forge those relationships and it can be tricky, and you and you discover that they they're not necessarily that helpful. So somebody that that has done that in the past and likes to do it, you know, it is generous in that way. I know that in your in your real life in your writing life, you mentor writers. Yeah, no, I guess well, that's interesting because yeah, for me it's for me it's really it's really fulfilling because people did that people did that for me. So I feel like it's I feel like it's important to pass that on um and to make the space as accessible as possible, you know, and to let these young women um you know, I mentor um three three younger black women and you know, hopefully through our conversations it the stories that they want to tell, the things they want to do feel possible. That's what having a mentor is about, is that they they are the reality sitting in front of you. They are the realized manifestation of your ambitions in a way. You know, so when you have that directly in front of you and you're connected to that, you feel like you can do it. That's certainly how I felt when I had it. I had a, I had a, um, you know, a, a writer mentor me an amazing writer called Donna Daly Clark. And I remember at the time her books, her book was, you know, advertised on all over the underground and she had just won this amazing big award. And this was a black woman, black British woman from Montserrat. She was my mentor. And I cannot tell you what that, how that fired me up, (laughs) you know, seeing that happen for her and knowing that she was my mentor, knowing that we were meeting every two two months to talk about writing and for her to feedback on my work it gave me so much I can't you know it gave me so much quiet confidence so that's why I think it's really it's you know and of course we stayed connected for five years I think you know she was really really good to me in that way and and just I'm forever grateful to her for that you know so that's why I think that it yeah, these things, they are important. They do make a massive difference. You know, if I hadn't have met Donna, would I have still been a writer? Probably because I'm determined as hell. And, um, you know, I knew that I always wanted to do it. Would I have felt as confident? I don't think so. Not in that, at that time, the timing of it was critical because it was still fairly early on. When was it? 26, 27, I met her. We connected through a, a development program with Spread the Word, a mentoring program. So, yeah, that made a huge difference to me. And of course, that was after, you know, this whole missed opportunity thing. So it felt like I lost that and something else, you know, as as life as life can be. Well, what's fascinating is actually that's roughly where we are in your unlived life. So you're about the same age and you're looking for a mentor, but in this different yes, how field. Funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do. Think, I think sometimes these things have a way of sort of coming out in different yeah. guises. Um, how long do you stay as an editorial assistant before, before you take your next step? Probably a good two, three years. 
yeah I think yeah it's going to take a little time to kind of cut my teeth and make my mistakes learn from them (laughs) you know okay so you're now becoming an editor um and before we get into what that means I want us to just sort of side sidestep and talk about the rest of your life because work isn't everything um so are you still as you kind of go through these first few years of your career how's it going with your in your house in Brooklyn yeah, cool well I think I would have probably moved moved out <laughs> I think I would have my own um I would be having renting my own um place now um you know hopefully with a nice um space to work as well okay I'm gonna stop you for two seconds to talk about the finances of that situation I'm gonna have a side hustle no just something uh simple and easy Uh, maybe uh, working in a bar or a couple of nights um a week you know so that there is some sort of supplementary income coming as well because obviously I'd need to be able to afford um to be able to rent my own place so I think i shy from hard work so I would do what was necessary to kind of bridge that gap I think okay all right so you've done that you've saved up and so now you're you've moved into a a, a studio or something still in Brooklyn so just something easy um and then what's what's your social life like do you have a social life are you working all the time hopefully I have a social life yes I have a social (laughs) life I, I I know that I would I would have made some good friends because I think doing this sort of job you go out to stuff you know you go out to events and parties um so I think I would have I would have made some some good friends and some good connections uh and yeah going out would be important you know because you want to have a balance of both so I think I would you know enjoy (laughs) enjoy that I mean living in one of the greatest cities in the world uh, you know, you want to be, be able to enjoy the culture. You know, you want to enjoy the nightlife, the restaurants. I'm a massive foodie, so I love I love to eat. <laughs> so you know, um, meeting friends uh, for for dinner um, and um, you know spending time with them would be important. So yeah, I think definitely. But no man is an island. I can't just have this career. Okay. All right. Any romance? Definitely. Absolutely. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I enjoy men. Men are fascinating creatures. So they, they are, are fascinating, fascinating creatures. Fascinating creatures. So uh, yeah, I think I would have, <laughs> I would have hopefully had an eclectic selection of um, <laughs> male friends. <laughs> we should all have an eclectic selection of male friends. It's a really big decision to decide not to pursue a kind of exciting career option in the way that you did um, and stay stay put for a family member. It's extremely admirable. Um, it's also hard to do. Um, and I guess I'm just wondering before we move on in your unlived life, like did that... Did you struggle with that in real life? Like, did you have moments where you felt resentment or you felt like you had missed something big? I mean, I'm human. So I definitely did on occasion, especially those periods where, you know, things weren't going well. And I was, you know, I might have been struggling like in between jobs and I would think it would come up in my mind. It would come up and, you know, why did I say no? (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, was that, did I make the right decision? Uh, you know, and, and I would feel guilty about that. I would feel guilty that I felt, I felt a little bit of resentment about it. You know, I didn't want to feel that because it felt like that was, that was the decision that had to me to be made me being who I am, I just, at the time, I would have felt so selfish just up, up and leaving, you know. Um, but of course, in hindsight, I did sometimes kick myself, you know, thinking maybe I should have just done it. Maybe if I'd just done it, any, things would have resolved themselves anyway. You, you know, in that way, you kind of think, actually, it might have been, it might have been all right because they would have found a way to adjust they would have found a way to cope so yeah on occasion it it, it would came up but it, it, but usually when I was not in a great place when I was in a good place I'd managed to lock it away those periods where I was in a difficult place it just it would bubble to the surface and I would say to myself god why am I thinking about this now this is not useful <laughs> this is not helpful for me to think about this now well, let's, um, we are here, we are, we're allowing you to have this experience now anyways. So uh, let's, you've, you've, we're a few years on, you've moved out, you've, um, you're in, you're in your studio, you've been made editor. As editor, do you do anything else other than generate stories? Are you, are you responsible for shifting the scope of the magazine are you responsible for um you know what what do you try to do in that role that's a bigger role it's a role that's strategic like what's your do you get to implement some vision I think so I mean I think that would definitely be be part of it and I would I would want to kind of uh, stay on par in terms of the vision that they already have but I would I would want to expand it even more. So I know with somebody like me, I think it would be an even weirder magazine because Trace <laughs> wants some some weirdness in it because Trace was really cool, but I I I don't think it was I don't think it was experimental necessarily. Um, so I would want to have some experimental elements in it, just in terms of like I don't know uh, some of the photography and some of the um, you know the stories covered that they they just could have been they were it was really interesting but it could have been even stronger I think so um, I would want to get people on board who ha- were in line with that vision that sounds really exciting and then what what does that mean for it does it mean that it it becomes a more prominent magazine does it does I, I guess I'm wondering if sort of your status rises if the magazine's status rises you know it's hard to say it's like if you make those sales isn't it I think (laughs) well do you let's decide yeah if if that happens obviously there's a certain kudos that comes with that as an as an editor um so yeah maybe maybe when once that happens and and I'm able to get it to that that place you know I may be made in charge of uh, the online television aspect of it as well because I think Trace 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 had an online TV channel so let's just say that Jesus I'm doing bloody well here aren't I (laughs) let's just say that let's just say that yeah not only that but I get made ahead of content as well online video content as well as you know part of my remit which would be huge um if that did happen so yeah 
Well, because, yeah, now we're talking about, we, you know, so you got there in about 2006 when you were 24, and then it's taken you, I think, what are, you know, maybe five, six years to get to this point. It sound about right. Um, so we're in sort of 2011, 2012. So this is an excellent time for sort of booming video content and online content in general. And is that, do you, do you do content? You don't do content stuff in your current life. Why are you interested in that? Well, I guess I'm, I guess it makes sense in a way because I'm, I love film, you know, so um, I, you know, I wrote for a filmmaker's magazine um, and I, again, I love like, just, I love interesting voices. So if I did, you know, if I did get put in charge of this aspect as well, I would want to commission lots of great short films, lots of great, um, you know, uh, documentaries and really like empower the voice of black youth, you know, really make that particular strand, yeah, youthful and exciting and dynamic um, and just, yeah, get, get people who know that scene really well involved in it. You know, the, the point about being an editor is it's a bit like being a producer, really. You know, you kind of, you find the talent and you say, here, this is what I have. This is the budget. What can you do? You know what I mean? You kind of like, it's like giving people the freedom to do the things that they want to do or seeing their talents and saying, here, you could do this. That would be wonderful. Why don't you take that up? Um, so that's what I would want to be able to do that, you know, like create those sort of spaces. It's an interesting difference in terms of sort of, we were talking earlier about agency um, and responsibility, like from being a writer where everything is entirely on you, as opposed to what you're discussing now, which is to be able to sort of enable somebody else's vision and sort of help sort of birth it and bring it into the world. Yeah, it's different. And it's funny because they both, you know, they both require a certain psychology, I think. Um, with being a writer, it's much more internal. Like you said, it's much more isolated. But um, when you're talking about managing people you have to be able to manage and read different personalities you have to be able to see um you know the talents in different people and be able to encourage that and to be able to forge good relationships with people and you have to like people I think I really think you have to like people as well um, and lead you know also lead very very clearly and um I think I'm somebody that you know, when I have a vision for something, I'm really clear about it. Uh, you know, I'm really passionate about it. You know, even if not everybody gets it, um, you know, I would be happy to try to prove people wrong uh, and to really kind of establish a team where we work really, really hard um, to make sure that it's it's a success. But, you know, my team also has to like me. People have to like you to want to work hard for you. And, you have to be able to unlock what it is they want. That's what I mean by the psychology of the role. The best managers that I've worked with are people who were able to do that. Every single time I've enjoyed a job, um, it felt like I was being seen and heard. That was because that manager or that director looked at me and said, what do you want to do? They were able to see that this is a creative person. And if the job doesn't have some element of creativity, she's not going to, she's not going to enjoy it. So it's about looking at that person, spending a bit of time with them, getting to know what they want and finding a way to empower that. 
I love this. I feel like it's like a little mini masterclass for any managers who are listening. (laughs) I really do because that's been my, like the good managers I've worked with, that's how they've been. The really brilliant ones is that they're very clever in that way. You know, hopefully they genuinely enjoyed our relationship, but I think they were also savvily able to say, well, how do I get her invested in this? You know, absolutely. So you're clearly doing this in your role as head of content at Trace um, and you're sort of growing the space and you're um, commissioning in particular pieces about black youth. Um, What happens next? Happens next? Gosh, I don't know. I think I would enjoy that for a while. Um, I would sit with that for a while. Um, And then maybe after some time at Trace, I might start thinking about what else is out there. I might start looking, thinking about what what could possibly be the next challenge. Um, although I know that that I would wrestle with that a bit because obviously this is this is would be such a f- creatively fulfilling role, you know, to have, and that the access that it would give me, I think, would be great, like within the industry. Um, so possibly, I think I would I would be cons- I would be thinking about what my next move would be I wouldn't make that next move yet but I would be contemplating what it could be I think okay so you're just starting to kind of look around yet but you're you're still pretty content where you are I'm curious about one thing that you mentioned right at the start which we haven't come back to is your other brother who lives in Atlanta who put up the cash for your move very generously What's going on with him? Are you guys seeing each other? He's not far away in Atlanta. Yeah, I would still be tapping him for cash on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> Even with your big fancy well, head of content job? You need to make him feel needed. You know, I think, <laughs> you know what, you know what siblings are like. Yeah, we would definitely be hanging out and he would be great because he is like, you should talk to Baba Ba, you should talk to this person. Yeah. So he would be all up in my business. He would be all up you know, like advising me about things that I should cover. And because he's very much a people person as well, like super, well, he's even more of a people person. I think he's super outgoing. Um, So he would be, we would be, we would be talking a lot. And yeah, I definitely would be seeing him, I think quite regularly, just like, yeah, because he's fun, you know, he's, he's a fun guy and he's a, he's a good big brother. So he would be a really nice I think support network for me you mentioned when we talked the other day that he was really keen for you to go to America and that he was talking to you about how his experience as a black man in Atlanta felt really different and kind of positive and that that was part of what he was sort of trying to communicate to you and as he encouraged you to come over absolutely um I remember those conversations you know while I was yeah, still quite vividly. Uh, he just said that it's not, it's not like, you know, being in the UK where it feels really, really hard for black people just to try and make their way um, within the system. He had been in Atlanta and there was a really sort of um, proficient black middle and upper class there and they lived really well. And, you know, you worked really hard, but you got those rewards. Um, whereas I think he just felt like in Britain, you have to be a certain class to actually really, really live well. Whereas in America, it really is that thing of being able to come from anywhere and be able to achieve what you want and, you know, live well doing it. So 
And he just felt like it, it kind of opened his eyes, um, particularly his Atlanta experience. He was like, wow, this is really fantastic. I mean, we had, you know, we had, we had grown up in Nigeria and we're from a, you know, middle-class background. So we lived well in Africa. It's not like we struggled when we were in Africa, you know, we had a really, really, really great life. Um, but I think uh, after we'd left boarding school, it was hard, um, you know, just trying to sort of find your way and um, the resistance that you would get. Uh, and he had, when he lived in England and lived in London, he had found that very, very difficult to try to kind of make his way as a black man. And he got very frustrated, uh, which is why he ended up leaving. So he felt like the Atlanta experience just kind of really opened his eyes and um, to what was possible. And he wanted me to share in that, I guess, you know. And it feels like you're experiencing that in your unlived life in New York, for sure. Does that feel right? Like that you're really feeling that you've got opportunity and that you can envision something and make it happen yeah, absolutely like that's what he was doing he was like this is the great side you know you want to you want to come and experience that you know so let's I think I want us to kind of move forward in time a little bit and see um see how things progress so um what else is happening how about this eclectic group of men I, I think I would have whittled it down now uh, maybe I've whitt- whittled it down to maybe one man <laughs> <laughs> one, one man who's like you know a significant other hopefully um okay who is he is he gosh yeah like what's he like getting very uh, specific um I think I think he'll be creative like me um and I think he would be well-traveled hopefully and um kind a kind person. I think that's really, really important. Uh, and someone just very open as well. It's nice to like waiters in restaurants and, you know, just somebody that's judge a man's character by the little things like that, like how they treat yes. other people. You know, I think that that's, that's an interesting, um, like quality. So it would, it would be somebody, I think he's like generous and, and kind and, and also community orientated you know, that isn't just about himself. Okay. Do you, he said he's well-traveled. Do you guys travel together? Yeah. Where do you go? Hopefully he's not like leaving me behind when he's <laughs> traveling to nice places. No, I want to like Tahiti, Hawaii, uh, Cuba, you know, just like interesting places um, that expand our horizons. That would be really cool. All right. And do you guys move in together? Uh, I guess so. Although I love, I love my space as well. So Yeah, no, maybe. So, yeah. So maybe, yeah, maybe we're really close, but we still have our own a- apartments. Okay. Um, let's, let's go back around then. Okay. That's going well. I'm very pleased for you. Thank you. <laughs> he sounds delightful. I wish you all the best. Thank you. What, um, what the, we're, there's a there's a kind of glaring question here, which is that we're getting up to about 2014, 2015, I think I've decided, um, which is around the time that you published Butterfly Fish, yeah. right? So obviously that's happening in your real life. Are you doing anything? Are you doing any writing? Are you doing any of your own personal creative stuff in this unlived life? Um, I think I am. And I think that maybe thing nonfiction is bubbling. Maybe essays. I don't know. I just like glints of coming from London, from Nigeria to London to to America and being in the creative arts. Like there's something in that, 
you know, to share. So I think that I would, I would be, while going through all that, I would be still doing like my scribbles and my diary entries and writing about my experiences. And then at this stage in my life thinking, God, wouldn't it be nice to, I don't know, assemble all of that into some kind of book maybe a book of essays would be something that I would be thinking about taking time to work on, taking time off to do. So that could be the next step. How brilliant is that I circle back to writing? Oh my God, you're a genius, Miriam. Oh my so God. I'm already very excited about your essay collection. So you, it's going to be brilliant. So do you, you, do you, um, do you get in advance and so you take some time off or you take some time off first just because you're that brave? I think I get an advance hopefully because I think I think um yeah I think hopefully my um my cachet as editor and you know the experiences that I have uh, and the fact that I've been quietly writing in the background behind the scenes anyway um and the fact that I know lots of people creatively and hopefully I'm connected I think I will be able to get a really good agent who can broker like, you know, for me. So I get some, you know, some time and an advance to, to be able to just focus on, on working on those essays. Yeah. And so then you write them and how do they do? Well, I think they do well. Yeah. I mean, they don't have to necessarily like do incredibly well, but I think there would be some success hopefully because it's, you know, like hopefully yeah, I would have a good team that would market it properly. Like young women who are trying to find their way in the world and, you know, young black women and young women of colour would see it as like, I don't know, a kind of Bible in a way to, to refer to. This is so narcissistic. I love it. The humility is extraordinary. It's just the Bible. Uh, no, but you, I know I love that though. You write something that's obviously really, and again, I mean, I think the theme that's running through this is this way in which you have this real drive to sort of guide people, mentor people, provide something that can be of some sort of service for somebody else. And so that seems to be sort of the aim of these. And then um, I'm wondering in this unlived life, you've got your lovely traveler man. I'm wondering where you guys are. Do you still want your space? I come round. I come round. Down the line, down down the line. Yeah, I come round down the line, and we're living together. Um, well, I think we're. I feel like we're getting kind of. What I like to do is try to co- bring us up to sort of present day, and I feel like we're getting. I feel like we're getting relatively close because you've published your collection. Um, you know, we're probably about two thousand. I don't know, sixteen, seventeen. Um, you've moved in with your man. Um, let's try to just think about what happens in the, in these kind of final few years here. Do you return to work? Do you keep writing? Do you do both? I would, I would probably do both. So I would return to work, but in a, in a part-time capacity so that I have time to write. And then, um, yeah, in, in, in my downtime, I would, I would work on more books, I think definitely, because why wouldn't you, once you, once you get the bug, you know, and I've had, I have that essay collection. I just think that my brain would want me to put out more stuff, you know? So I would I'd be thinking about what, what might be the next thing, what might be, you know, the next book or the next project. Um, but I definitely think that I would, I wouldn't be working full time. Hope so. I would hope so because having worked really, really hard to get to where I was, 
um, you know, you don't want to um, overstretch yourself or burn out. Um, it, it feels like it was a really intense period, even though lots of great things happened. I think it would be able to strike that balance of at least being able to have space to breathe and for things to, to crop up because you need to have room for that to happen. When you're just constantly on the treadmill, you miss things. Even though it feels feels like things are happening at the same time, you also miss things. So what are the, what are the things off the treadmill that I need to be receiving? You know, space I would want to be in. I would want to be in that space to receive those things, um, whatever they might be, you know. But I definitely think writing would continue as part of that. How do you, because I mean, this feels like something so applicable to so many people. How, I mean, do you find that you're able to create space for receiving in this life? And how would you be doing it in your unlived life? I, I mean, I meditate. And maybe that might sound odd to people, but I think it's a great space for receiving things because interestingly enough, you you clear your head out in that time frame. But what happens afterwards for me certainly is that I feel open afterwards throughout the day. I can't explain it, but I just do. I feel open and it's wonderful. And it's also been great for my anxiety being able to meditate and you know, taking that time every morning for. I think half an hour I usually do to feel anchored in some way has been really, really great. Uh, and then, like I said, as the process of that is that I walk around and something will come to me from nowhere. That's like a brilliant idea for a story. And I'll go, holy shit, this is great. <laughs> this happens because I'm just in that space where I've been able to just bring things down and feel open to receiving things whereas if I'm in that you know because being a writer you can get quite anxious about all the stuff you're not doing you, know, you just you you don't recognize the stuff that you are doing absolutely well and what I'm thinking is that um, as we move forward in your unlived life that capacity to make space I mean, we're getting to the point where, you know, in real life and unlived life, we can't avoid the fact that 2020 was the year of the pandemic. And I'm wondering if in your unlived life, you have cultivated that same capacity to meditate and that same capacity to make space because it feels like a very helpful thing to have. Yes, I think I would have. I really do. I, um, I do. And I feel strongly about that because when I recognized that it was something I needed to do, it was such a powerful feeling it was there was such an urgency about it that I think that it would be similar you know when you have those moments where you just you, you know your con your subconscious and your body are almost like in equilibrium in terms of what they're saying to you and you go oh my god I need to pay attention to this yeah I feel like it would definitely have have, have manifested as well in that other life how extraordinary that, that, that there have been there have been differences, but also parallels. And, and the elements are fascinating. You know, those points at which you, you feel things transfer, then there's that kind of fluidity between the lived life and the unlived life. That's, you know, that's kind of amazing. Well, I think what's so cool about it is that you're absolutely right in that, because essentially what it is, I mean, because it's it's not another life. It's It's you at the end of 2020, kind of thinking your way into this. So it's like, of course, you're bringing, you're fully bringing yourself to it, but it's almost like you're bringing yourself to it with kind of another 
like, I don't know what sort of scaffolding around it or something like that. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's this really funny interaction of your imagination, but also your real lived self and your real lived experience, you know, and you, you can't extricate the two and you can't actually live another life. But this, I feel like allows you to kind of get at some kind of core realities, I think for you. Um, and also, as you say, just to, just to kind of feel like you've lived through something that you haven't, you know, that as we talked about before, you might've just kind of tidied away otherwise. I feel like a part of me is experiencing a little bit of it, just in terms of, I know it sounds like an odd thing to say, but just in terms of, you know, the emotion and um, mapping it through and figuring your way through stuff. So yeah, really, really um, fascinating experience. I'm so glad you've enjoyed it. I've loved talking to you. Tell me if you were to bring one thing over from your unlived life into your lived life, what can it be? And that can be a feeling or a sort of sense, or it can be like, you know, I want to be the head of content for an online magazine. You know, what would you, what would you bring? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it would be the moment where I make, I get that head of editorial position, that feeling. Yeah, definitely. I think that would be a really um, amazing feeling and I think the possibility of what could happen afterwards would be within that moment as well like I would be thinking wow this is great but what else is to come after this you know so it's that it's that crucial moment of having achieved something but also the door that could open as part of it if that makes sense yeah oh I love that I just love that I don't, I don't think anything I can offer you would be, would be any better than that. So whatever I say now, I think I might end up editing out, but I feel like, I feel like what I want to give you is I think as we talked about your, you describe this um, universe in which, you know, you you, you left your major responsibility, you know, which was your sister, what you felt like was a big responsibility then. And you came over to New York and you ended up in a way, kind of caretaking other people. You really, we talked a lot about your, the way that you would take care of your staff and the way that you would elevate voices, um, which is really, really beautiful. And I guess I want to um, support and applaud that. And I also want to ensure that you continue to feel, which you clearly do in your work and the way that you, you um, uh, get yourself out in the world, but to continue to feel a sort of sense that, that, um, someone is taking care of you and that you're being looked after as well, whether that's by yourself or by others, because you're extremely precious. Um, it's been a total joy to talk to you. And I just, I hope that you feel one iota of the sort of love and care for you that, that you clearly um, provide to others. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's a wonderful thing to want to transfer over. Arenison is clearly a hugely giving person, so much so that in her real life, she gave up an exciting opportunity in New York in order to stay in London and look after her sister. Even when we dove into her unlived life, she transformed that giving nature to the people she worked with, championing the voices of young Black women in particular in her role as a magazine editor. I found it interesting that her reason for not going to New York, her sister's health, was completely not an issue in her unlived life. As soon as we were off on our path, Arenison found a quick and tidy solution to keeping in touch with her sister. And when we checked back in on her midway through the path, her sister was pretty much fine. I wondered whether I should dig deeper into this. 
whether I should really question if it was that easy for her sister just to be okay when her health had been a barrier to leaving. But then I think the answer was clear. If her sister hadn't been okay, Arenison simply wouldn't have gone. For the exercise to work, her sister had to be healthy and safe, because if she hadn't been, Arenison would have been on the first imaginary plane back to London. Making space in this way allowed her to complete her unlived life in her mind, while staying true to the values that make her who she is. 